it was a Tuesday morning and it was 4 a.m. And I sat on the edge of my bed and I thought, wow, I know why people take their lives. And it wasn't that I loved my wife or my kids any less. It wasn't that I didn't love my job because I did. It was because I was in so much pain that the idea of having to fight through the next day with this pain was way scarier for me than dying. Welcome everyone to Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. My guest today is Michael Landsberg. Welcome to Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast, where we talk to experts from around the world about PTSD, financial stress, sleep, mind-body connection, addiction, depression, fitness, and more. You will hear from others who have struggled, overcame obstacles, and continue to thrive. This is where you will learn the tools and resources you need to have a healthy mind and a healthy life. So we've got an exciting promo for all the Mental Edge Lifestyle podcast listeners out there. We teamed up with True Local. True Local is an online meat delivery service that connects you to high-end locally sourced products delivered right to your doorstep across Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia. They ship overnight on dry ice, so your box will stay frozen during delivery, even if you're not home when your box arrives. Their customizable plans are commitment-free, so you can skip, pause, or cancel at any time. No strings attached. Check out truelocal.ca and enter promo code MENTALEDGE10 for a discount on your first box. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me for another episode of Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ryan Gallagher. We've got another fantastic podcast episode lined up for you. We're speaking with a massive guest, Michael Landsberg, huge mental health advocate, has his own foundation, Sick Not Weak. So easy to talk to. It was an absolute pleasure to be joined by him and an honor. And if you don't know who Michael Landsberg is, he's a Canadian sports journalist and the current host of TSN's First Up with Landsberg and Koliakabo, and former host of TSN's Off the Record. And of course, was uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, a sports desk anchor. This is a great episode. We talk a lot about mental health, his own mental health, my mental health. We share stories. We talk about his TSN days and some of his favorite guests and worst guests on his show off the record. Just an open and honest conversation that I think everyone's going to enjoy. So without further ado, Michael Landsberg. Again, I'm just going to say thank you because I know you've probably been up nice and early doing your morning show, finishing probably around 10, and then you jump on a call to do a podcast with me. And I've also listened to you speak quite a bit, and you don't usually like when people say thank you because we're giving you a platform to kind of talk about your story and and mental health, but I really appreciate it and am very humbled to be uh, speaking with you. Well, I appreciate it as well. And uh, as soon as I'm done, you know, my first job, which is the one that I get paid for, I turn into mental health mode to sick, not weak mode. So the fact that I'm talking to you at this point is what I'd be doing if I wasn't talking to you. I'd be talking to someone else or I'd be writing something or whatever I thought my time would be best spent doing. So let's go. Fantastic. And I got to like commend you, the stuff you're doing online and just talking to people and answering tweets and, and tweeting about other stuff is fantastic. And it, it's really going a long way. I know I follow you and I love it. But let's start quickly. TSN 1984 is where you got your start. But how did you know broadcasting was going to be for you? Or did you know? 
Well, I always wanted it. And I would say until I was in third year at the University of Toronto, I didn't think I could do it. You know, I came from a family where my brother's a kidney doctor. My dad was an orthodontist. Uh, and my parents didn't pressure me to do uh, anything that I didn't want to do. But that's all I knew. I went to University of Toronto with a whole bunch of friends thinking, you know, they all wanted to go into accounting or dentistry or, or medicine or law. And I just followed them. But I didn't want to do any of those things, nor could I have done any of those things. So what got me into broadcasting was having nothing else, no safety net, no second choice. I just realized one day, oh my gosh, there's only one thing I want to do, which is to talk about sports on television and radio. And I may as well go for it because I ain't going to law school and I ain't going to medical school. So that moment of realization, when I went into U of T radio, pushed the button, the red light went on, I started talking. That's what changed my life. And that's why ultimately probably you and I are having this conversation today. Yeah. And I mentioned the things that we have things in common and I did the school route at first as well. I went to Brock. I was like, I'm going to get into sport management. I did that for a year. It was terrible. Wasn't ready for it. Same thing though. I should just go to school, blah, blah, blah. And then I ended up doing three years at Mohawk for uh, television communications. And then ultimately though, in the back of my mind, firefighting was kind of my passion. So that's what I ended up into. And that's what I am today. It's funny how things come full circle. So TSN 1984, I mean, I was born in 1983, but I mean, you did sports desk for a long time. So I do definitely remember you. And I've heard you talk about, so you just walked in and was it like, take a chance on me? I can do this. Well, I was, I had graduated from Ryerson, I guess, two years before I had got a job right away at CHFI radio. And I, you know, I wanted to do sports on TV. And when TSN first started, this was like, oh my gosh, you know, too much to hope for, but hey, someone's got to get a job. Why not me? So I did a demo tape at the local cable, the community station that I was actually doing a show at. And I sent it in and I got a call back from the guy who was the program director, the vice president of programming, whose his name happened to be Michael Lansbury, which is a weird coincidence. But having, uh, you know, my phone rings, he goes, why should I give you a chance? So I say, well, what do you mean? He goes, you haven't done anything. I said, never make the assumption that because someone hasn't done something, it means they can't do something. I said, he said, well, I'm going to audition eight people. Why should you be one of them? And I said, because I'm telling you that I can do this. And if I can't, then boot me out of there. Never talk to me again. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that risk. So he said, okay. And I went and did an audition and I had prepared for this audition virtually every day of my adult life. I had thought about doing this. As I told you, I always wanted to be a sportscaster, but never thought that that opportunity would arise or that I could find my way. So when I went in to do this audition, I guarantee you I had practiced more than anybody on the planet for a job like that. And, you know, ultimately I was ready to do it and I got the job. Seemed to all work out perfectly for you. So how does OTR come about? 90, what, 97, 98? Is that your idea or they approach you? They approached me. I think there was a couple of things. Number one, there was a new vice president of programming. His name is Keith Pelly. Uh, he's gone on to, uh, well, he was, uh, he was the most senior guy at Rogers. He's one of the guys that bid on the NHL rights that they got the rights at Rogers and Sportsnet. Now, whether that worked out well or not, only you can say, but you know, when somebody takes over in that job, there's winners and losers because they come in and there's people they like and people they don't like, well, he liked me and he trusted me and he thought I had something unique to offer. 
So he knew that I was looking for a challenge outside of sports death, something where I could be more me. Uh, so he said, why don't we do a talk show at six o'clock in the evening? Now, no one did anything at six o'clock in the evening at that point. It was just a dead time. So he didn't risk anything in giving that to me. I may have risked a little something. And we started doing the show. It was not the idea that he had for a talk show. It was the name that he gave it, which ultimately was a terrible name, if you think about it. How do you do a national talk show and call your show off the record? It doesn't make any sense at all. But immediately, the show was a hit because TSN was a hit. You know, I have no delusions thinking, you know, even if I had done the show at Sportsnet or The Score, or CBC or any place else that we would have been successful. We would not have been, but TSN owned the marketplace. So we were able to get an audience right away because of that. We were able to get an audience right away because we put wrestlers on and the wrestling community started tuning into us. And even though we would only put wrestlers on say once a month, they still became loyal to the show. What you said there too, because you were able to be yourself, right? And it's great. I loved Off the Record. And especially when you mentioned the wrestlers, because those were some of my, like listening to wrestlers for some reason, fascinated by like their lives. But you were edgy, right? You wouldn't just agree with people. So you kind of had that, well, here's what I think. And just the different opinions back and forth. So it worked well, which is what I think is also really great now, right? With your show with Carlo is he's played, right? He's played the game so he can give his perspective, but that allows you to kind of sit back and and point fingers and and maybe go back and forth on different opinion it works out well do you like the dynamic like oh, yeah anybody else or oh, yeah oh yeah i love it you know like carlo uh, he's kind of half son half brother to me you know he's great i mean he made the show the show is now like officially successful and it's because of carlo i mean I, i'm not saying it'll bring anything to the table but we wandered before him to find a guy who played for the maple leafs to find a guy who played 14 years in the nhl to find a former hockey player who loves football and basketball as much as he loves hockey is rare uh, but back to the persona on off the record i was at one time i don't like to brag but i think i was the most despised person doing sports in Canada. And as a matter of fact, I would say, without a doubt, I was. But I also had people that, that liked me, right? I don't think anyone felt in the middle. You either thought I was a jackass who was arrogant as hell, or you thought, hey, you know what? This guy's entertaining because he's pushing guests, because he's confident, and because he doesn't accept an answer if he doesn't think it's the right answer. So I, I've lived my life being called arrogant, and I have learned very quickly that what someone else thinks of me means nothing. And that actually allowed me to move into talking about mental health the way I have, because I never cared what people thought of me. That's a huge point in, in mental health, not caring. Like I said, that's why I loved watching you, because you didn't care. And it's huge, because if you went on a show and just agreed with the person, there'd be no show. So you're doing OTR in 98. That's when the anxiety and depression starts? Yes. Yeah. Well, I had anxiety as a kid, and it was pretty severe, but never, uh, never told anyone. So I was just an untreated guy with general anxiety disorder that bordered on panic disorder at times. I had specific fears that were not really legitimate fears. And, uh, you know, I kept it inside because I didn't know I was sick. You know, like who back in that day knew that there was a thing called general anxiety disorder. So I went through my childhood, you know, amazingly happy childhood with an amazing family, parents that adored me. I just hid it 
And I eventually thought, okay, well, you know, this will disappear. Well, it didn't disappear. And certain circumstances in my life and somebody that obviously I loved a whole lot ended up getting pretty seriously ill and my anxiety went through the roof and I never really recovered from that. And my anxiety, when it gets really bad, leads to depression. And that's, I think, what led me down into the depression hole. And that certainly has dominated my life for the last 20 years or 21 years, I guess it would be now. You're living with this, you know, this huge successful career and people know family and and everything, but 2008 is when you really had a major like hit, right? 2008, November, Great Cup, Montreal. Yeah, I mean, what you, uh, good job, by the way, uh, you know, learning a little something about me when you take time to talk to someone, because I've been on your side of the equation a thousand times or more than that. And the, my side right now, which is answering questions, obviously, I spend a lot less time doing it. So I appreciate that. 2008 was, uh, again, related to anxiety that was way out of control based on, again, my daughter and this eye problem that she had. Uh, and she was having a particularly rough go and I became obsessed with it. I just thought about nothing else. And that led me down the depression hole. I had been on medication and off medication four times before that. Each time I had relapsed. This time I waited too long. I got, you know, beyond sick. 2008, it's kind of a famous story, at at least to the people who I speak to. Uh, And I use this very often when I go to speak that it was November 24th. It was Montreal. It was the Marriott Hotel. We were there for the Grey Cup. It was a Tuesday morning and it was 4 a.m. And I sat on the edge of my bed and I thought, wow, I know why people take their lives. And it wasn't that I loved my wife or my kids any less. It wasn't that I didn't love my job because I did. It was because I was in so much pain that the idea of having to fight through the next day with this pain was way scarier for me than dying. It's a story that like, and I've heard it so many times and that's why I brought it up because so many people are dealing with the depression and anxiety and just not talking about it. And that's why I wanted to point that out. And again, saying that we have similar things and everyone has something in common. I just want to quickly share 2014 sitting on my couch. My wife goes swimming, newly married, new house, new job. And I'm sitting there drinking, playing video games. And I had the similar experience of going, I know why people take their lives. It was probably one of the worst feelings, like just an ache all over my body of like, so if I end it today, what does it matter kind of mentality, but didn't get to that point obviously, thank God. But I experienced that thought. And when my wife got home, I told her it broke down and said, like, I need help because I didn't deal with past trauma of my dad passing away when I was 16 years old forever. I didn't deal with it. I just put it off, put it off. And now fast forward, I'm on this huge, I guess, journey of talking about mental health and wellness and talking to people and people like yourself. And I feel completely fine and open and confident about sharing that because I think that's what people need to hear. Oh, yeah. So I give one speech a week, sometimes a year, I give two speeches a week. And one of the things, I mean, I hear the same things over and over again, like reaction from people. I ask questions of the audience. I pull the audience every time on how many of you have suffered from a mental health challenge. And, you know, I know people won't put up their hands and that's why I'm there, right? To make them feel more comfortable. How many of you have cared about someone with a mental health challenge, either currently or in the past? Then 99% of people put up their hands. How many of you have been touched by suicide? Meaning, you know, perhaps through yourself, an attempted suicide, but somebody 
that you cared about, where you can say suicide has affected my life. And I would say 60 to 70% of people put up their hands. So I understand the demographic that I'm talking to. And I can tell you after every single speech, somebody comes up to me and says these words, I feel understood. And very often they're saying those words, they're crying, they're emotional because they've never felt understood before because no one has ever told them what they're feeling and give them the ability to say, me too. Right. Like I, I, one of the things I do always is I say, I'm going to tell those of you who have experienced depression and anxiety, I'm going to tell you four things that we all feel. And if you have not felt one of these things, put up your hand and tell me no one has ever put up their hand. We all feel some things in common. And that is empowering for people who suffer, but it's also empowering for a caregiver who can say, wow, I thought I understood, but maybe I don't. When did you realize then like, I have the ability to be doing this. I have the ability to go talk to people. It was a while before you talked about it on your show openly, right? Yeah. So the chronology of this is until uh, 2009. So the year after I had had, I call it sort of my fall into the deepest, darkest hole. And I was doing better. I had gone back on medication. Until that point, I never talked about it on off the record or any of the platforms I had. Not because I was ashamed, obviously, but because I didn't think anyone would care. I thought, honestly, it will make no difference to anyone. And in fact, people will just say, oh, you know, he's arrogant and he knows some people don't like him. So now he's trying to get us to like him. So I just never mentioned it. And then we had Stefan Riche. I'll tell this story within 30 seconds because it could go on for 10 minutes because it's the story of my life or it's one of the most significant stories of my life. So uh, Stefan Riche is a guest on Off the Record. I had read that he had suffered from depression in the 1990s. I said, is it okay if I ask you about it? He said, no, it's too painful. I said, if you'll talk about it, I'll talk about it. He said, okay, we went on the air. We talked for 90 seconds. The next day I started getting emails almost all of them from men saying the same thing. Watching the two of you speak about depression was the first time I've ever seen two men talking about mental illness. And the fact that you weren't ashamed or embarrassed, and the fact that you two guys have lived the life that you wanted to lead, the fact that you've had some successes in your lives. Because of that, I'm telling you something I've never told another human being. I too suffer, and that changed my life. That, yeah, right there, and getting those emails must be like, obviously so inspiring and it keeps you going. And it's right away, that 2014 story that I just shared with you, my wife knows about that and really not a lot of other people. Again, it's just something about you. You have that. There's just something there that you can be like, hey, this guy's been through it. It's Michael Lansbury. Right. Let's talk about it. So you know what it's like? I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I didn't realize because you, you shared it so easily. You know, I thought you must use that story all the time because it's incredibly powerful because you know, like I heard you telling that story about how you understood suicide on that one moment when your wife was out of the house. So I'm listening to that. I'm going, wow, that's so powerful. That's so impactful on my life and other people's lives. And then, you know, that gives me a really good glimpse at the things that I say, because they, as you said, they're very similar. But, you know, one of the things, reasons why you would tell me that is because, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm safe you know that I'm not going to judge you in any way because I'm just said the same thing myself. And if you can find someone in life that you know understands you, it's a huge thing. Like if you want, were coming out of the closet for your sexuality and you found it really difficult to do that, but you found someone who had come out of the closet with their sexuality and they talked about how difficult it was, but how they overcame that, that would be a person you would tell in a heartbeat. 
So that to me is what this is about. You share your own story. You expose as much of yourself as you can and then wait and find out how people will come back to you and expose themselves. Totally agree. And that, like you said, it was so easy for me to share. And again, that's probably why similar experiences, but I, and I've shared throughout the podcast and online and everything, other stories of my life, because I know what I'm doing can have an impact and I'm blessed to be able to talk about these things. And I have no issues talking about them. That was just one story for whatever reason. I just never, you know, was like, Oh, I'm going to share this one until the other day when I was talking to my wife, I said, you know what, I'm going to bring that up. And she said, you should. That's kind of where I'm at now. So when you start talking about it, and this is what I also want to point out to people, because some people will not talk about things in fear of judgment and ridicule and all that stuff. So did people, you got those nice emails, but did people send you stuff like whatever, who cares, you know, stuff like that? Or was everyone pretty, like, was it really wasn't as hard as you thought it would be, I guess? I didn't think it would be hard. So after we finished taping the show, me and Stefan, I didn't think, wow, that was really significant. I forgot about it. And the next morning, guy who works on the show says, hey, take a look at these emails. Because, you know, we had an email account, otrtsn.ca, and people would message every day, hey, why don't you put Vince McMahon back on the show? Or why don't you do this? Or Landsberg, you suck. Typically, that's what we would get. So, you know, you're used to getting emails, but these were all so different than anything I had ever seen in my life. And I can tell you that that was now, I guess, just over 10 years ago. Is that right? Yes, just over 10 years ago, because it was November of 2009. I can tell you that in my whole time doing this, I have not heard a single negative thing. No one has ever said to me, you know, like, suck it up kind of thing. Now, that's not quite true. On Twitter, sometimes people will do that. But it's not like I even look at that because it's all anonymous, right? And there's people that just have, you know, they want to troll. They want reaction. And when you don't give it to them, they tend to back away. But everything else from giving, uh, you know, 200 speeches to uh, doing a video blog every day to all of the things that I've done, not one time have I ever thought, wow, that person is really disrespecting me and mental illness. Being in the spotlight with all this stuff and just, I guess, from a career standpoint, how do you deal with, like you said, you don't really give it too much thought, but early on in your career, did you care when people were like, you're terrible on sports desk, go away, like stuff like that? Did you care about that stuff? Okay, well, here's what I cared about. I always cared about someone, if they were going to question my competency, then that would bother me. If they questioned my personality or my approach or, you know, the cocky swagger when doing highlights. I mean, I, I did it in a way that I, I don't think, I mean, it was unique, right? And I never cared if people said, I don't like you. What I cared about is if they said, you're terrible. And they explained what they thought was terrible. But that would scare me, right? And I would try to learn from that. But otherwise, I, I learned early on in my career, you don't try to make friends with your audience, you try to have an audience. That's great advice. So like we said, you're active on Twitter. And most recently, there was a tweet that I just want to kind of touch on that really stood out, really couldn't have some open conversation about Toronto Fire Chief, Chief Peg puts out a video of him talking about going for his check-in and, you know, that was shared numerous times, retweeted, and I know you shared it, but you wrote, this is a huge statement that shouldn't be. For the chief to say, I see a psychologist regularly should prompt reactions like big deal and who cares and so what many of us do. So that's what we need to strive for. Chief Peg is a leader in helping us get there. I loved it that you said that. How can we get there? What do we do? Well, I, I mean, I, I, 
clearly a problem of this magnitude. Like there's no quick fix. You're talking about a thousand years of mankind believing that things like depression were not real illnesses. So to, to, you know, to get to a point where we accept the other, you know, is going to take a lot of work. We need to move in the right direction. Are we moving in the right direction? Yeah, probably, but really slowly, I think. So what do we do? We get people who have the illness, people like you and I, to do what we're doing. And when we talk about the illness, is not to apologize for it, because that feeds into the stigma. So if you say, uh, you know, hey, Michael, what, what do you think, you know, like depression, how is that being for you? If I go, I, I, I don't know why I get like this. I got a great life. I got great things in my life. I, I don't know why I'm like this. I shouldn't be. Oh, my gosh, I should appreciate the good things in my life. I mean, screw that. That's the stigma. We need to talk like, hey, I have this illness called depression. Notice the word illness. It's not a weakness. It's not self-inflicted. This is an illness like anything else. Parkinson's is called a brain disease. Depression is called mental illness. That is wrong. This is a brain disease. And until we can prove its existence with an x-ray or an MRI or a blood test or a biopsy, until we can prove my brain is different than your brain, I am depressed, you're not depressed, we will continue to fight this battle. One day, you'll be able to show someone a picture of your brain that says, wow, that's depression. Or they'll be able to take your blood and say, wow, you know, your numbers are way out of whack. We need to talk about it without apologizing for it. We need to look people in the eyes and say, I demand that you accept my illness as being an illness and not a weakness. And if you can't do that, then that means that you don't respect me. And that means we got a problem. I know from my perspective too, in terms of just having conversations with people and talking to people, more and more people you know, message me on Instagram and say, hey, I love what you're doing, oh, which is a great start. Like you said, we're not gonna fix it overnight. But in my case, like my anxiety over the years was just through the roof, but I put in so much work on myself to just be able to go through every day and little things that I thought, you know, were huge aren't. And then when big things happen, I learned the positive coping skills. And for me, you know, that was the healthy diet. And I regularly check in with a psychologist all the time. I think it's so important. So what do you do? Like, I know you mentioned medication, but do you do talk therapy or, or does that not work? Because I know it's different for everybody. Right. So here's my attitude about treatment. And when I'm giving a speech, I almost always will say, look, I'm telling you my story. And for me, medication gave me my life back without a doubt. But I'm not an advocate for medication. I am an advocate for one thing. And that is the attitude that I will do anything to get better. I don't care whether it's medication A, B, C, or D. I don't care if it's a combination of A and C. I don't care if it's electroconvulsive therapy. I don't care if it's cognitive behavioral therapy. I don't care if it means that I'm being psychoanalyzed. It doesn't matter if it's magnetic stimulation. It doesn't matter because I am so sick and I've given up my life to this illness for so long that I will do anything to get better. And if you can't say that, then I question, number one, you know, your sanity. But number two, you know, are you sick enough? Like, no one should go on medication. No one should have electroconvulsive therapy if, if they're, you know, like just moderately sick. But if you're sick enough, and you know this, your life is over at that point. And if you won't say, I'll do anything to get my life back, then you've got to really rethink that. So for me, it was medication. But for other people like you, uh, it was something else. I'm just an advocate for saying, I'll fight. I'll fight 
every single day and I will not quit till I feel better. So is that what got you through that I will fight? Is that what gets you through? Like, I feel like you didn't, you don't miss much work. You were doing 200 shows a year, right? For OTR for 18 years. Yep. yep. 200 shows a year for 18 years. I never missed one. For, uh, good, eh? Yeah. You, uh, you know, you're nailing it, man. Seriously. <laughs> um, I, I wish I knew more about you. And I'm at my laptop right now, so I guess I could Google you and find out. But, you know, you mentioned that. And I'm always quick to say, because I want to be an example of what people can understand and appreciate and relate to. So when you say, or when I say, yeah, you know, I suffered from depression that was incredibly, or at least I found it incredibly severe and debilitating, but I never missed a day of work. That sounds like I'm saying to people who have similar depth of pain that they should keep going to work. And I did it because a, I knew that staying home was going to make me feel better. And B, I was in the kind of career where I didn't think I could take time off. I didn't think that I had the kind of latitude that maybe I did have, but never pushed it. So, you know, when people say, well, you know, how were you able to do that? I did it because, because I didn't think I had a choice. Do you ever find it exhausting at times? Like you're spending, so you do your show in the morning, you know, you're doing something like this and then you're blogging, tweeting, whatever, answering people. How does that play into, you know, your depression and anxiety when people are not unloading their stuff, but trying to have conversations with you? How do you yeah, a, step away? That's a complicated question that, uh, I mean, I'll try to answer it and say, you know, because of my hours, because my day starts at 4.30, it's a challenge, right? You know, sleep is a challenge and everybody knows sleep deprivation is not good for anybody, let alone someone with mental health challenges. So you take that, then you add to it the fact that yeah, I, I feel this massive responsibility to use the rest of the time that I have that's free time and not like stuff that I want to do for myself or family time. I kind of feel like I have a, a, the obligation to do whatever I can in the mental health space. So now it's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm working all the time, it feels like, which is my choice, right? So I'm not complaining. But now you add that to the fact that, you know, I'm not getting enough sleep. And then you've got a guy who being pretty well dominated by the jobs that he does, as opposed to him dominating the jobs. And then there's, you know, another big thing, which is, as you say, embracing other people's challenges, which for the most part, you know, I'm okay with that, but sometimes I realize, oh my gosh, I'm exhausted. I don't feel like responding back to someone. And sometimes I don't, right? And then I feel a certain measure of guilt. But for the most part, you know, I'll try to do what I can because I know what it's like to be on the other end of that email that someone might send me. So, you know, do I wear myself out? Yeah, absolutely. Do Am I looking for sympathy? Uh-uh. And I think it's, you got to just remember, right? You're human. There's only so much you can do and so much you can give. Tell us a little bit then what's Sick Not Week all about. Well, I had a meeting with some folks yesterday because Sick Not Week is a charity that we launched as a not-for-profit, I guess, three and a half years ago. We became a charity two years ago. And our mission statement is our name. We want to show people that mental illness is a sickness, not a weakness. The word weakness is at the heart of the stigma. If the stigma was, for instance, a watermelon, and you started to cut through the watermelon, at the very center of that watermelon would be the word weakness. Everything stems from that when it comes to the stigma. The perception that mental illness is not like Parkinson's, not like a brain disease. Somehow it's self-inflicted. Somehow people who have it can help themselves. 
So I would say that that one word weakness is the most important word when we address the stigma. Nobody wants to be seen as weak, right? In particular men, but women don't want to be seen as weak. And if you believe that your mental illness is a weakness, then you will not tell anyone because you don't want people to see you as weak. So that's, uh, you know, at the heart of sick, not weak is our goal to show people that mental illness is a sickness and not a weakness. And if you could do that, the stigma would disappear. But, you know, that that's a pretty broad statement. So, you know, we have all kinds of things that we do to try to impact in that area. You know, sick, not weak is, and you have to wait for my full answer on this because I sound like a bit of a, a jerk when you hear the first part. Sick Not Week is a wild success because we have helped a person. One person makes it a wild success. Saving one life is incredibly successful. But also, and this is the part that I wanted you to wait for, Sick Not Week is a failure because we are just a tiny blip on the radar. And I know how to deliver this message. I know how to talk to people. I know how to change their lives because I have been them. And the fact that we're not bigger, the fact that we're not changing more lives, I think is a failure. So we're in the process of looking for partners in this who we think can take our message and blow it up. I do a video blog every day. 2,000 people listen to it. 2,000. You know, if it's good for 2,000, it's good for 200,000. But I don't know how to reach those people. And we're going to figure a way to do it. And we're going to reach them. And then when we have this conversation again, I'm going to say, well, you know what? We've done a good job of getting our message out there. Yeah. And it's got to start somewhere. And who better to push this message than obviously yourself? Can we talk a little bit about the TSN days and OTR? And You ask anything that you can think of that you want to find out from me. I mean, anything. Just from a fan standpoint, watching the shows and stuff, like your favorite guest of all time. You know, my favorite guest of all times, uh, God, people ask me that like virtually once a week. And I should have a ready-made patented answer. But one of the things that it's hard when you do 4,000 shows and you have on many of those shows four guests, it's so easy to forget people that at the time you thought were amazing. It's so easy to forget them two weeks later because two weeks later you've done another 10 shows. So um, give me a sport and I'll, or an area of life, and I'll, and I'll give you somebody. Let's just quickly make it wrestlers. Yeah, um, I, I loved almost all of them. Uh, I thought that Stone Cold Steve Austin was a brilliant guy who just understood the medium better than almost anyone I'd met. Probably my most interesting, uh, for me, the most interesting interview was Mark Calloway, who was The Undertaker. And keep in mind, or I should tell you that when we started the show, we put Bret Hart on our first week. And we, our intention was not to say, oh, my God, we got Bret Hart. It's going to be crazy. But people started to pay attention. And then when Bret Hart had the Survivor Series mess with Vince McMahon, Bret Hart called us up and said, I want to come back on and tell my story. And then Vince said, I want to come on and tell my story. And I guess Vince liked how we dealt with this. So he said to us, you can have my entire roster and you can have them all out of character because he knew I had no desire whatsoever to interview The Rock, but I wanted to interview Dwayne Johnson. I had no desire to interview The Undertaker, but I sure as hell wanted to interview Mark Calloway. So having guys out of character and just finding out what made them tick and how they got into what they're doing and their perceptions of different things and also things that happened backstage, so to speak, 
that they had never spoken about. I had uh, that information because two guys that worked with me, Jeff Merrick and Bob Makowitz, especially Jeff, knew everything about wrestling. He did a show called Live Audio Wrestling. He gave me the questions to ask. So guys wanted to come on because we were asking questions that they thought, you know what, they're respecting me. They're not treating me like I'm some kind of buffoon. They're not treating wrestling any way than they would treat any other aspect of life. So uh, Mark Calloway, for sure. Chris Jericho was always fun. We let him host the show a few times, which was kind of fun. Um, uh, Bret Hart was just, you know, Bret Hart, man. He's uh, a lovely guy who I got to know. I'm sitting at my dining room table now, and Bret Hart sat at this dining room table. He came for dinner one night, which was pretty cool. I loved Vince uh, because I loved... If you were to ask me two qualities in a guest that I like the most, it would be be smarter than me and have thick enough skin. Because in that scenario, I can challenge them on anything and not be afraid, A, they won't be up to answer it, and B, that they'll start pouting and, you know, like, we'll, we'll lose guests in the future. So I loved guys like Vince McMahon and like Dana White and like Brian Burke at the time. I loved that because I knew I could be at my best or I had to be at my best. And uh, the challenge of debating someone on their own life. So when Vince McMahon is a guest and I'm talking to him and I'm challenging him on things that he's done, on the Bret Hart thing, on all of the issues of the day, on steroids, on concussions, on all of the deaths they've had, on the raw sexuality of raw back in the day. And I'm challenging him on this. I'm challenging him about his life, right? So now I got to have the confidence to be able to, to say, no, Vince, that's not true. Or I don't think you're being accurate. And that takes guts on my part because he knows a thousand times more about him than I know about him. And that's what makes for great TV, that challenging. And would you give a list to, you know, the producers of the show and say, hey, here's who I'd love to talk to? Or was there anyone you're like, I'm a fan of this person, so I don't think it'll go well because I'm a fan. I won't be able to separate that. Do you know what I mean? No, I was able to separate it. And, you know, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, we, we all lived this. This was like the dream job for all of us on the show. First of all, I mean, just the nature of getting to do a talk show on TSN and then having a guest driven show where we created the rules for guests, not management, not Keith Belly, who I mentioned to you. It was us on the show. And the rule was we will put anyone on this show that you will find interesting. So it didn't matter whether it was an athlete or a coach or a general manager or an owner. It didn't matter if it was an actor. It didn't matter if it was an, an author of a book. It had nothing to do with, are you sure you want to have a person like an actor on a sports talk show? We didn't care. We looked for fame. We looked for interesting people. We looked for people that would draw eyeballs. And because of that, I got to meet this amazing cross-section of people that I can promise you, outside of you know, late-night talk show hosts who see this great cross-section of people, we met the greatest lineup of people that anybody in television has ever met. You know, from every world, we got to meet them. Such a cool job and such a cool platform and what you did with it and leveraged it to help people is huge. Uh, and just putting yourself out there is, is fantastic. I won't try and take up uh, too much more of your time. Would there be like, not worst guest, but most difficult guest? And I, I have a feeling if I can maybe answer it or just give a name, would it be... Yeah, go, go. UFC fighter, um, Sonnet? Chael Sonnen. Yeah. 
Shell Sonnen, he walked off. Uh, he got mad at me. It was a satellite interview, so it's not like he was sitting across from me. He didn't like my attitude. The story behind that is, is really kind of cool. So I go to spin class with my daughter. The spin instructor said, he, I knew he was a big UFC fan. He said to me, you got to get Shell Sonnen on the show. And I said, why? And he said, he's the best talker around. So we booked him for the show. And the day before, I say to Vlad, he was the spin instructor, what do you think I should ask him? He goes, man, you got to give him the hardest time because he is so great at fighting back and he'll understand it's just good TV. So he said, you know, ask him about being sort of afraid of Anderson Silva, who was like his biggest rival. So I started that way. I said, you know, like, I know you challenged Anderson Silva to a fight when you were in the octagon, but now it seems like you back down. And he goes, what? And I said, well, you know, are you just afraid to fight him? And he got so mad and the interviews kept going, uh, whether it was up or down, I don't know. From my standpoint, it was going up and getting him better and better and better because conflict makes for great media. So he eventually got so mad that he unclipped his mic and took off. And uh, that was still to this day by far the thing that I've done that makes me most famous, whatever my level of fame is, it was Chael Sonnet. So afterwards, I, I went to the guys I work with. I said, I have no idea. Was he really mad? Was that fake? I didn't know. So I messaged him and said, dude, are you, you know, like, sorry if I offended you. I, I was told, you know, give this guy a hard time. And he said, uh, apology accepted, which I thought he could have come back and said, I'm sorry too. But we became buddies after that. We became like, like real honest friends where, you know, we would talk about life. We would talk about things. And it's amazing because it started off with him hating me. And then he explained to me a couple of years after that interview, he said, you know, I shouldn't have gotten pissed at you because you were doing the job that you should do. And also you were doing the job that I would do. He said, you know, I would give people a hard time. But he said, I had tested positive for steroids. No one knew this at the time. I had driven from my house to Portland to the studio, which was a half hour. I didn't have a fight coming up to promote. You guys weren't paying me. And I thought, you know, screw him. He's giving me a hard time and I'm doing him a favor. He said, so I was in a bad mood and we got to be buddies. Yeah, that's why I asked the question. I had a feeling that I figured I was like, I'll just answer it because I figured it would end up with that name. And then you guys did a few other episodes. And like you said, you're, you're friends now. So where can we find you on social media if people need to reach out or just follow you? The easiest place to get me is on Twitter at Hey Landsberg, H-E-Y Landsberg. That's actually left over from OTR. So that's why I tweet every night, as you mentioned, the fact that you've seen my tweets. Like, I'm just going to go and look at what I tweeted last night. I, I don't remember, uh, but let's see. Okay, what time was it? It was, so last night, this is just typical me. Uh, 14 hours ago, I tweeted out, I am the victim of my illness. I am not the cause. I am depressed. I am not sad. I am exhausted. I am not lazy. I am losing the day. I am not beaten. I'm alone in my head, but I'm not alone in this room. I want to quit, but I will not quit. I am sick, not weak. And that's the kind of, you know, sort of flowery, poetic, um, some would say bullshit, but others would say, you know, raw and open and honest stuff got put out there. Also, this is, uh, again, typical. If you sleep beside someone with depression and find they're often pissed off at you, it's likely because you think you understand them but you actually don't have a clue what they're feeling. You owe it to them to find out as much as you can. Want to know more? Ask. The stuff you're putting out there, it's, it's striking so much conversation. Like I said, I look at it and there's so many comments and I'm sure you get tons of direct messages and emails like you mentioned. 
just helping people and changing their lives, this, the work you do and, and your platform, the way you use it for good, because social media can sometimes be used for very bad. I appreciate, again, having this time with you. I got one final question I'd love to ask people. What moment of adversity are you most grateful for today? I would say, without a doubt, the one that I mentioned to you before, November 24th, 2008 Marriott Hotel in Montreal, room 521, 4 a.m. in the morning, learning just how deep my pain was when I started to get relief. First of all, showed me the joy of relief in a way that I would never know, uh, but also has stayed with me. And I know the importance of doing what it is we're doing now. So like the worst moment of my mental illness actually turns out to be the most important moment of my life when it comes to the sharing of mental illness and a big part of my life. And that's why I asked that question because people build, you know, the resilience around some of the worst moments that end up being a life changer. Michael Landsberg, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure. Great questions, great research. And so let's do it again. I'd love to chat with you. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. That's it for me on Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Michael Landsberg. Thank you for joining us today on the Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. If you know someone who can benefit from being part of our community, share this episode with them so they too can continue to grow and sharpen their mental edge. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you like to listen. We would love to hear from you. Connect with us at mentaledge.ca. And until next time, remember... Healthy mind, healthy life.